0: Introduction of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Calgill. She, by H. Rider Haggard. Introduction. In giving to the world the record of what looked at as an adventure only is, I suppose, one of the most wonderful and mysterious experiences ever undergone by mortal men. I feel it incumbent on me to explain what my exact connection with it is, and so I may as well say at once that I am not the narrator, but only the editor of this extraordinary history, and then go on to tell how it found its way into my hands. Some years ago I, the editor, Was stopping with a friend, via Doctissimus et Amicus Neus, at a certain university, which, for the purposes of this history, we will call Cambridge, and was one day much struck with the appearance of two persons whom I saw going arm-in-arm down the street. One of these gentlemen was, I think, without exception, the handsomest young fellow I have ever seen. He was very tall, very broad, and had a look of power and a grace of bearing. It seemed as native to him as it is to a wild stag. "'In addition his face was almost without flaw, "'a good face as well as a beautiful one. "'And when he lifted his hat, "'which he did just then to a passing lady, "'I saw that his head was covered with little golden curls "'growing close to the scalp. "'Good gracious,' I said to my friend, with whom I was walking, "'why, that fellow looks like a statue of Apollo come to life. "'What a splendid man he is.' "'Yes,' he answered,' He is the handsomest man in the university, and one of the nicest, too. They call him the Greek god. But look at the other one. He's Vincey's (that's the god's name) guardian, and supposed to be full of every kind of information. They call him Sharon. I looked, and found the older man quite as interesting in his way as the glorified specimen of humanity at his side. He appeared to be about forty years of age and was, I think, as ugly as his companion was handsome. To begin with, he was shortish, rather bow-legged, very deep-chested, and with unusually long arms. He had dark hair and small eyes, and the hair grew right down on his forehead, and his whiskers grew right up to his hair, so that there was uncommonly little of his countenance to be seen. Altogether he reminded me forcibly of a gorilla." "'and yet there was something very pleasing and genial about the man's eye. "'I remember saying that I should like to know him.' "'All right,' answered my friend, "'nothing easier. "'I know Vincy. I'll introduce you.' "'And he did. And for some minutes we stood chatting. "'About the Zulu people, I think, for I had just returned from the Cape at the time. "'Presently, however, a stoutish lady, whose name I do not remember, "'came along the pavement, accompanied by a pretty fair-haired girl.' and these two, Mr. Vincey, who clearly knew them well, at once joined, walking off in their company. I remember being rather amused because of the change in the expression of the elder man, whose name I discovered was Holly, when he saw the ladies advancing. He suddenly stopped short in his talk, cast a reproachful look at his companion, and, with an abrupt nod to myself, turned and marched off alone across the street." I heard afterwards that he was popularly supposed to be as much afraid of a woman as most people are of a mad dog, which accounted for his precipitate retreat. I cannot say, however, that young Vincey showed much aversion to feminine society on this occasion. Indeed, I remember laughing and remarking to my friend at the time that he was not the sort of man whom it would be desirable to introduce to the lady one was going to marry, since it was exceedingly probable that the acquaintance would end in a transfer of her affections. He was altogether too good-looking, and what is more, he had none of that consciousness and conceit about him which usually afflicts handsome men, and makes them deservedly disliked by their fellows. That same evening my visit came to an end, and this was the last I saw or heard of Charon and the Greek god for many a long day. Indeed, I have never seen either of them from that hour to this, and do not think it probable that I shall. But a month ago I received a letter, and two packets, one of manuscript, and on opening the first found that it was signed by Horace Holly, a name that at that moment was not familiar to me. It ran as follows. Blank College, Cambridge. May 1st, 18-blank. My dear sir, you will be surprised, considering the very slight nature of our acquaintance, to get a letter from me. Indeed, I think I had better begin by reminding you that we once met, now some five years ago, when I and my ward, Leo Vinci, were introduced to you in the street at Cambridge. To be brief and come to my business, I have recently read with much interest a book of yours describing a Central African adventure. I take it that this book is partly true and partly an effort of the imagination, however this may be it has given me an idea it happens how you will see in the accompanying manuscript which together with the scarab the royal son of the sun and the original shard i am sending to you by hand that my ward or rather my adopted son leo vincey and myself have recently passed through a real african adventure of a nature so much more marvellous than the one which you describe that to tell the truth, I am almost ashamed to submit it to you, lest you should disbelieve my tale. You will see it stated in this manuscript that I, or rather we, have made up our minds not to make this history public during our joint lives, nor should we alter our determination were it not for a circumstance which has recently arisen. We are, for reasons that, after perusing this manuscript you may be able to guess, going away again this time to Central Asia, where, if anywhere upon this earth, wisdom is to be found, and we anticipate that our sojourn there will be a long one. Possibly we shall not return. Under these altered conditions it has become a question whether we are justified in withholding from the world an account of a phenomenon which we believe to be of unparalleled interest, merely because our private life is involved. "'or because we are afraid of ridicule and doubt being cast upon our statements. "'I hold one view about this matter, and Leo holds another. "'And finally, after much discussion, we have come to a compromise, "'namely, to send the history to you, "'giving you full leave to publish it if you think fit, "'the only stipulation being that you shall disguise our real names, "'and as much concerning our personal identity "'as is consistent with the maintenance of the bona fides of the narrative.' "'And now what am I to say further? I really do not know. Beyond once more repeating that everything is described in the accompanying manuscript exactly as it happened. As regards she herself, I have nothing to add. Day by day we gave greater occasion to regret that we did not better avail ourselves of our opportunities to obtain more information from that marvellous woman. Who was she?' How did she first come to the caves of Cor, and what was her real religion? We never ascertained, and now, alas, we never shall. At least not yet. These and many other questions arise in my mind, but what is the good of asking them now? Will you undertake the task? We give you complete freedom, and as a reward you will, we believe, have the credit of presenting to the world the most wonderful history— as distinguished from romance, that its records can show. Read the manuscript, which I have copied out fairly for your benefit, and let me know. Believe me, very truly yours, L. Horace Holly. This name is varied throughout the accordance with the writer's request. Editor. P.S. Of course, if any profit results from the sale of the writing, should you care to undertake its publication, you can do what you like with it. But if there is a loss i will leave instructions with my lawyers messrs jeffrey and jordan to meet it we entrust the shard the scarab and the parchments to your keeping till such time as we demand them back again l h h this letter as may be imagined astonished me considerably but when i came to look at the manuscript which the pressure of other work prevented me from doing for a fortnight i was still more astonished as I think the reader will be also, and at once made up my mind to press on with the matter. I wrote to this effect to Mr. Holly, but a week afterwards received a letter from that gentleman's lawyers, returning my own, with the information that their client, and Mr. Leo Vinci, had already left this country for Tibet, and they did not at present know their address. Well, that is all I have to say. Of the history itself the reader must judge. I give it him with the exception of a very few alterations, made with the object of concealing the identity of the actors from the general public, exactly as it came to me. Personally I made up my mind to refrain from comments. At first I was inclined to believe that this history of a woman on whom, clothed in the majesty of her almost endless years, the shadow of eternity itself lay like the dark wing of night, was some gigantic allegory of which I could not catch the meaning. Then I thought that it might be a bold attempt to portray the possible results of practical immortality, in forming the substance of a mortal, who yet drew her strength from earth, and in whose human bosom passions yet rose and fell and beat, as in the undying world around her the winds and the tides rise and fall and beat unceasingly. But as I went on, I abandoned that idea also. To me— the story seems to bear the stamp of truth upon its face. Its explanation I must leave to others. And with this slight preface, which circumstances make necessary, I introduce the world to Ayesha and the Caves of Kor. The Editor. P.S. There is on consideration one circumstance that, after a re-perusal of this history, struck me with so much force that I cannot resist calling the attention of the reader to it. He will observe that so far as we are made acquainted with him, there appears to be nothing in the character of Leo Vinci which, in the opinion of most people, would have been likely to attract an intellect so powerful as that of Aisha. He is not even, at any rate to my view, particularly interesting. Indeed, one might imagine that Mr. Holly would, under ordinary circumstances, have easily outstripped him in the favour of she— can it be that extremes meet, and that the very excess and splendour of her mind led her, by means of some strange physical reaction, to worship at the shrine of matter? Was that ancient Callicrates nothing but a splendid animal loved for his hereditary Greek beauty? Or is the true explanation what I believe it to be? Namely, that Aecia, seeing further than we can see, perceived the germ and smouldering spark of greatness which lay hid within her lover's soul, and well knew that under the influence of her gift of life, watered by her wisdom, and shone upon with the sunshine of her presence, it would bloom like a flower, and flash out like a star, filling the world with light and fragrance? Here also I am not able to answer but must leave the reader to form his own judgment on the facts before him, as detailed by Mr. Holly in the following pages. End of Introduction Reading by Jeff Cowkill